Choice is proudly brought to you by Wordsworth Books. It's the first Monday of the month, so it's Book Choice on Fine Music Radio 101.3 and various other frequencies. I'm Gory Bowes Taylor. And I'm Matabatab. How are you, Gory? <laughs> well, did the Easter Bunny bring you some good eggs on April Fool's Day <laughs> yesterday? Unfortunately, no, the Easter Bunny didn't come my way. Ah, we'll some chocolate up for you later. <laughs> This happy hour, Andrew Marshbanks, Wordsworth Books, brings you an inspiring bagful of the best in fiction and non-fiction. John Hanks finds cardinal imperatives and some omissions in James Clark's Overkill, the race to save Africa's wildlife, while Philippa Chaffetz finds gorgeous food for the gluten intolerant in Jenny Kay's the South African Gluten-Free Cookbook, and more munchies in Olami, Nerit Saban's Gluten-Free Cookbook too. Melvin Minar finds Dictatorland, The Men Who Stole Africa, by Paul Kenyon, a surprisingly fast and his most super-engaging read in recent times while Mike Fitzjames, cruel as ever, hopes to crack our minds with three dead dangerous thrillers. Vanessa Levenstein suggests that while most university students are juggling their part-time jobs and studying, the fictional Evan Spiegler had bigger plans as Vanessa reviews How to Turn Down a Billion Dollars, the Snapchat story by Billy Gallagher. Finally, Paul Duncan and Alain Proust have done it again with their new book, Inside Kimberley, another stunning heritage book. Philip Todras talks to Paul Duncan, and we have two giveaway copies of Inside Kimberley, but there's no competition question this month. FMR staff are still hunting Easter eggs. So do listen up next month on the first Monday in May when you could win one of two copies of Inside Kimberley and one of four 250 Rand Wordsworth vouchers. Andrew Marshbanks. Hi there. Thanks, Gory. Well, let me start off first. A real treat has just come through into the shop. It's the new Joanna Trollope and it's called An Unsuitable Match. Well, I have to admit, I've always liked Joanna Trollope. Her early books were always excellent, really absorbing family drama. In fact, she is the master or mistress of the family drama. And she actually went down a little bit. I would say her last two books or so were not great, but she's really back into top form now with her new book. It's called An Unsuitable Match, and it's about a mother and a father, They get divorced, and she meets another man, and the children don't trust this man. He is too flip, he is not strong with money, and they think he's after their mother's money. Now, he's not after the mother's money, which is really quite odd, but he has a a very strange cavalier attitude to money, and they get very uptight and very worried about what's going to happen to their mother. Because as I say, when you are the age of 65, 70, you need every cent that you have to make sure that you last through to 
have enough money to the end of your life. So it's all about that. It's a funny thing, as Joanna Trollope is getting older, her books are getting more and more concerned about older people's worries and problems. So it's really quite fascinating. Uh, You can start the Joanna Trollope's right in the beginning, and you can see they are young people getting married, and now we're old people worrying about, is the money going to last? Okay, so it's Joanna Trollope, an unsuitable match, and it's 285 rand. And then a book totally different. It is uh, non-fiction. It's an amazing little book. It's about a dog, and it's about a man, and this man does these ultra-marathons. You know, the sort that you, you run a marathon a day through the Gobi Desert in the most appalling situations, carrying your own food, etc., etc., and you're sort of virtually trying to kill yourself. Well, that is this guy. He loves these matches. And on this one race, he's going through the Gobi Desert. He meets this dog, and the dog adopts him, and he adopts the dog. And it's a tale of these two And it is just absolutely beautiful, heartwarming. And while you're reading this heartwarming tale, you actually relive the terrible suffering that happens with these amazing people when they do these extreme sports events. It really is an eye-opener. I was fascinated. I thought it's a wonderful book. The dog is just adorable, and we all want a dog like this. And the dog, of course, is called Gobi, after the Gobi Desert, where this man is running his way through. It's astonishing, incredible. As they say, the true story of a little dog and an incredible journey. It's by Dion Leonard. I can recommend it highly. It's been really top of the bestseller list for a long time. And it's 175 rand. I really loved it. Now, anyone who enjoyed and who didn't enjoy that wonderful secret diary of Hendrik Hrun, 83 and a quarter years old, there is a new one. Also starring Hendrik Hrun, a wonderful book. They call it grey reading, grey whatever it is, because these are books that concern old people and the love of life and how they get back into life after tragedy and after being put in retirement homes. It's a wonderful, life-affirming book, extremely funny, beautifully written, and I can recommend it highly as 290 rand. And then just to have a thriller here, we've got the third one in the Orphan X thrillers. Orphan X, if you remember, is an orphan who was found and trained to be an amazing ninja killer. It sounds ludicrous, and it is a bit ludicrous. But he is used by the CIA to do assassinations, political assassinations, etc., And uh, he is one of several people who are trained like this. And then the operation is canned by the new president, and he is out at a limb, and they've got to kill him to stop him giving out the secrets. And he also has a mission in life to save people. So he has a phone number where people in distress phone him. So you have all these strands going through. They are wonderful books. We're on to number three. It's called Hellbent, a pure nail-biting stay-up-all-night suspense, Harlan Coburn says, and I agree with him. I love them. And it's 290 rand. That's Hellbent, and it's by Greg Hurwitz, the new Orphan X. And to end on a Quite a a more serious note, a book called Outsiders, Five Women Writers Who Changed the World by Lyndall Gordon. Lyndall Gordon is a marvellous writer. She is Capetonian, living in the UK, and she has 
collected five women that she thinks are the absolute epitome of people who, through their writing, changed our life and the world. They are Virginia Woolf, Olive Schreiner, George Eliot, Emily Bronte, and Mary Shelley. She goes into great detail about these women writers, why they were so important, and why we should read them today. Marvelous reading. Lyndall Gordon's always superb. And that is 315 Rand. That's all I've got time for today. Cheers. Thanks. Happy reading. John Hanks, some cardinal imperatives in James Clark's Overkill. The title of this book, Overkill, The Race to Save Africa's Wildlife, written by James Clark, one of South Africa's most senior and respected journalists, should be a warning that this is not for the faint-hearted. The accounts of the nauseating behaviour of the mindless slaughter of thousands of animals in South Africa set out in detail in the self-indulgent catalogues by Cordwallis Harris and Gordon Cummingham must rate as one of the lowest points in man's disrespect for other living creatures and the end is not in sight. The recent death in Kenya of the last northern white rhino received international headlines, with just two females of this subspecies surviving and neither being pregnant the demise of this one male confirmed the imminent extinction of yet another subspecies. It's easier to get depressed and pessimistic by a seemingly unending catalogue of bad news. Human beings are currently causing the greatest mass extinction of species since the disappearance of the dinosaurs 65 million years ago. If present trends continue, one half of all species of life on Earth will be extinct in less than 100 years because of rapidly increasing human populations, habitat destruction, pollution, invasive species and climate change. Overkill, in common with other similar accounts and the focus of a disproportionate amount of environmental NGO activities, has concentrated on the decline of lion, elephant and rhino with a chapter on the ravaging of marine resources. These are generally well presented and up to date, but the species described are what I always refer to as the charismatic megafauna, one that always attracts international headlines, such as the subspecies of the northern white rhino I mentioned earlier. Yet, these species are important for all the reasons Clark has given. But wildlife is far more than these selected few. What I was looking for in Overkill was the recognition that we must conserve the full spectrum of plants and animals if Africa is to have a sustainable future. The continent's environmental education programs are now stressing that the conservation of Af Africa's extraordinary celebration of diversity of fauna and flora is intimately entwined with the issues of sustainable development, especially the conservation of our water catchments, which we all know about here in the Western Cape. Equally important is the cardinal imperative of the conservation of pollinators for food security. And there's not one mention of the loss of pollinators in Overkill. And, of course, the vital role of wildlife in such key functions as cleansing the atmosphere, a genesis of soil, the role of countless species of plants and animals as sources of food and medicine for millions. Clark does admit at the end of Overkill to being deliberately ambivalent about the modern professional hunting industry and is less than enthusiastic about well-documented advantages of a strictly controlled legal trade in rhino horn, which he failed to mention, incidentally, was strongly endorsed by the late Ian Player, to whom Clark dedicated this book. 
With more than half of the expected global population growth between now and 2100 predicted to occur in Africa, when it will reach nearly 4.5 billion people, massive land transformation and further loss of species will be inevitable. The funding needed to reverse these declines in selected areas will never be adequate for main agencies and through NGO support, which must of course be continued but must be strongly enhanced by a wildlife economy which recognises and encourages ethical and sustainable use of wildlife, including hunting, perhaps the subject of a more detailed analysis in Clark's next book. The title again is Overkill, The Race to Save Africa's Wildlife. It's written by James Clark and it was published in 2017 by Strake Nature in Cape Town. I'm Philip Chaffetz. Good news, the gluten intolerant. Many a punitive diet is self-inflicted in the name of beauty or longevity. But for the seriously gluten intolerant, there is no negotiating. For an adult, a gluten-free diet is no challenge. The options are endless. But how to tell a child, no more pizzas, hamburgers, cupcakes, pasta, anything made with wheat... There is a huge gluten-free industry emerging, but Jenny Kay wanted to develop recipes for her gluten-intolerant daughter to enjoy, delicious enough for the whole family and friends. Well known on the STARS Angela Day team for more than 30 years, Jenny shares these recipes in the South African Gluten-Free Cookbook. Jenny is passionate about baking and loves cooking, Together with her daughter, they spent hours in the kitchen creating awesome meals and irresistible home-baked treats. Jenny includes her recipe for a gluten-free flour mix and numerous ways on how to use it, from honey, from honey oat muffins and ricotta hotcakes for breakfast to sticky toffee pudding and apple and blueberry crumble for dinner. And for in-between, biscuit tins are packed with rusks and biscotti, shortbread and florentines. There's her daughter's favorite carrot cake and red velvet cupcakes, a gluten-free pizza made with gluten-free flour, and another polenta pizza with bacon, onions, mushrooms, and mozzarella, a cheesy polenta cornbread and a health bread, seed bread rolls for burgers, and readily available gluten-free pasta. Asian dishes are included. An Asian-style chicken with rice noodles uses a wheat-free tamari for regular soya. soya. For regular soya contains wheat. Pork lard in lettuce cups. Fish sauce is wheat-free. Traditional favorites are blissfully included. Malva pudding and pumpkin fritters. No disappointments at Christmas time. Recipes for both Christmas pudding with brandy sauce and mince pies. Some baking is flour-free. A flourless chocolate cake and a lemon polenta cake. There's also a lot of flourless, gluten-free baking in the Alami cookbook by Naritza Bun. Gluten-free poppy squares. Here's really Auntie Panina's date and nut roll and pistachio, cranberry, and chocolate salami. Recipes for almond biscuits, nutty biscuits, and coconut macaroons. Alami is the name of Naritz Deli in Bree Street, Cape Town. 
It's a very popular eatery for breakfast and lunch, eat in and take out. Alami is an Israeli word meaning global. Narit loves to mix flavors and ingredients from all over the world, but the food is wholesome and real. Narit's enthusiasm for good food and cooking permeates the pages of a book. It is a collection of recipes one wants to try. My list to start is hummus with roasted mushrooms, a chickpea carrot and egg noodle soup, Narit's take on her grandmother's recipe, a Thai salad, roasted zucchini with labna, zata and pine nuts, a potato, butternut, leek and onion pie. The South African gluten-free cookbook is published by Straight Lifestyle and priced at 230 rand, and Alami is published by Jakana, 330 rand. Both cookbooks are colourful with page-by-page recipes and photographs. And both sound pretty yum. Melvin Minar, Paul Kenyon was one of your most engaging reads in recent times? It is my fastest read in recent times. There are numerous reasons for this, including the super engaging way in which the highly skilled journalist Paul Kenyon spun out the remarkable intrigue of what is sometimes called the Rape of Africa. Even the title, Dictator Land, compels one. But my rush through this fine new book, one that defies you at every sentence and each turn to put it down and turn off the sidelight, is due to its highly charged relevance to the top political conversation going on right now in our country, namely land ownership, past and present. Dictator Land, subtitled The Men Who Stole Africa, is a detailed history of, yes, the notorious African dictators and their evil, but the threat running through all the bad stories, from Libya in the north to Zimbabwe in the south and numerous countries in between, is one of land, what was taken from below and what happened to those who lived on it. If the title suggests detailed backstories to the rise and sometimes fall of the likes of Joseph Mbutu, Zaire, Robert Mugabe, Zimbabwe, the splendidly detailed scenarios of their corrupt careers are filled in with a colonial history that brought them to these points of power and, yes, often inhumane malevolence. Of course, Kenyan, for some reason, doesn't do a complete roundup of the baddies, and one misses the colorful and grotesque stories of Idi Amin of Uganda and Jean Bedel Bokassa of the Central African Republic. It is also not quite clear why Hupwe Bwanyi is included other than for the terrors of the cocoa trade under his rule. The European powers that held onto their colonies, its subservient locals, and most importantly the commodities it produced for their own pleasures and economies, make up the real dark backdrop of the story, who in reality did steal Africa. The irony subtly charged in Kenyan's well-researched and subtle texts will escape no one who is following the current highly emotional political debate about ownership of land in South Africa and the concept of expropriation without compensation. I would suggest that Kenyon's so-readable book would be a valuable contributor to any discussion about this issue. Then to debates about the rights to water, forests, mining, etc. Often the colonial histories of Africa are kept in the misty, undefined back of our minds, and our concerns are with this recent past, current issues and contemporary problems like pollution and poverty. If one misses more detail of that history, Kenyon fills the already thick book with excellent personal vignettes of character on the ground. Often these people whom Kenyon met and interviewed are the counter-personalities to the dictators and their big lives. 
Paul Kenyon is a well-known journalist who has covered numerous hard-hitting current affairs issues, including on the BBC's Panorama programme. As a reporter, his sense for detailed observation plays out superbly in Dictatorland. As television presenter, he pushes that vivid narrative at a vigorous, totally absorbing pace. Just listen to this. And then another. Perch higher on the hillside, a square window cut roughly through its side. A twist of smoke, more shacks, two, three, then boys chasing plastic bags through an empty plain. Goats grazing on litter, thatch huts with beehive walls, a whole corrugated village of them. Tea cellars beneath makeshift canopies, men sitting on top of firewood on top of donkeys. Camels folded into Toyotas, and then the first concrete buildings, a gritwork of featureless boxes, walled gardens, creeping vines, occasional European style villas, as humanity wrestles back control from the desert, and we drive into a desert town. Yes, it's this kind of vibrant, dramatic drive that makes Dictator Land, The Men Who Stole Africa, my most highly recommended book right now. It is published by Head of Zayas. And Mike Fitzjames, three mind-cracking thrillers. Hello, Gory. We have great thrillers for our listeners this month. My first choice is 18 Below by Stefan Anheim. Just when one thought that the Scandinavian writers had gone very quiet, along comes this thrilling blockbuster which will glue you to the pages till your eyes give up. It all starts on a hot summer's day with a police chase of a speeding car in Helsingborg. The car finally plunges off a quay into deep water. When the wreck is recovered, the body of tech entrepreneur Peter Brees is found and the police enter it down as a suicide. Young, rich and highly successful, Breeze just didn't know how to ask for help. The routine autopsy, however, provides a shock. Breeze was already dead when the car crashed. He had been brutally murdered two months earlier, and his body was frozen perfectly at 18 degrees below zero. This is a must-read for all thriller lovers. My second choice is The Woman in the Window by A.J. Flynn. Anna Fox has not left her home for over ten months. Haunted by the past and lost in her memories, she's roamed the rooms of her New York house like a ghost, too terrified to step outside. Anna's lifeline to the real world is her window where she sits day after day watching her neighbours. When the Russells move in, Anna is instantly attracted to them. They are a perfect family of three and a reminder so much of the life she once led. One evening, a frenzied scream rips the silence and Anna witnesses something no one was supposed to see. Now she must uncover the truth of what she witnessed but even if she does will anybody believe her and can she even trust herself this was full of suspense and twists and told with great empathy a smashing read my last choice is Judgment Road by Christine Frian 
It's a complex story of bikers and their members, and it all starts when an outlaw motorcycle club sets up its headquarters next door to Seahaven. The enforcer of the Torpedo Inc. Motorcycle Club, Reaper, lives to ride and fight. He's a killer who turns his rage on those who deserve it. Feelings are a weakness he can't afford, until a beautiful bartender slips under his guard. Near Seahaven, the small town of Casper, has given Anya Rafferty a new chance on life and she is desperate to hold on to her job at the biker bar, even if the scariest member of the club seems to have it in for her. Anya cannot understand the animosity towards her by Reaper, but she keeps her head down and works hard. When Anya's secrets catch up with her, Reaper, despite his instinct, will have to choose between Anya and his club. This is a fascinating and revealing thriller. It's also an extremely sexy story, but all the better for it. I found it to be an engrossing and very satisfying read. That's it for this month. My choices were 18 Below by Stephen Anham, The Woman in the Window by A.J. Flynn, and Judgment Road by Christine Freehan. Enjoy your reading. This is Levenstein. The fascination of Billy Gallagher's The Snapchat Story. Social media has stormed into all of our lives. As a social media writer and a mother of a teen, social media plays a dominant role in my life. How to Turn Down a Billion Dollars, the Snapchat Story by Billy Gallagher grabbed me, not only because of its bright yellow cover, but because of the content. If you're not interested because you've never downloaded the Snapchat app, wait, neither have I. Snapchat is by its nature designed for the younger generation, and using the app is not a precursor to reading the book. Let's start with the basics. What is Snapchat? It's a messaging and photo-sharing app that appears and then disappears. It's for mobile use only, unlike other social apps which are also for desktop. The initial name for the app was Peekaboo. Now you see it, now you don't. The app initially received bad press, as it was perceived as a sexting app. However, in time, this perception shifted. The next question is, who is Evan Spiegel? Forbes magazine writes, Snapchat creator Spiegel became the youngest public company CEO when Snap became trading in March 2017. Each day, some 170 million people, mostly teens and millennials, use Snapchat to send disappearing messages. The author Billy Gallagher went to Stanford University with Spiegel, and if he comes across as a Spiegel worshipper, well, that's because, not to be unkind, he is. However, he does have insights into Spiegel that others won't. Like Mark Zuckerberg, Evan Spiegel launched Snapchat from his college dorm. Both men never finished their degrees. Oh, come on, Spiegel, you had a few credits to go. And both changed the social media landscape forever. When Spiegel was just 23 years old, he turned down a $3 billion offer from Zuckerberg, who wanted to buy Snapchat, hence the book's title. Gallagher tells the story of a subculture of ambitious, talented, and driven college students, just waiting to discover the next billion-dollar product, as is their birthright. 
And this is where it gets interesting. Snapchat succeeds where other great ideas from Silicon Valley have failed. Perhaps it's a combination. Spiegel really did believe in himself. He believed in the product. He was dedicated and he was innovative. He was also able to weed out what didn't work and along the way he just weeded out his best friend Reggie Brown. Towards the end of the book I found myself skim reading as what interested me more than Spiegel's money was his mind, how he was able to capture the zeitgeist of the social media generation and reinvent it. Facebook is the app of prosperity which equates with old and boring and Snapchat is the new black, white and yellow as their logo of the ghost face named Chiller demonstrates. Many more books will be written about Snapchat, yet Gallagher's unique insight does give him the edge. The book may raise some existential questions for you. Is a billion dollars worth more than completing a university degree when education is unattainable for so many? What is success? Is it turning down a few billion dollars, or is it having the courage to believe in yourself no matter what? An interesting read, because after all, Snapchat, the disappearing app, is here to stay. And here's a pre-record with the very clever Philip Todras chatting to the very stylish Paul Duncan. Paul Duncan, author, and Ellen Prost, the photographer, have produced Inside Kimberley, and it's published by Africa Press. Paul, I love the story about how you got involved with this book and the person who motivated it. Can you give us the background to Inside Kimberley? Yes, I was at a party once, one evening, and this got talking to this man who said he came from Kimberley, and I was at the time uh, thinking about doing a book on the Boer War and the battlefields of the Boer War. And his wife owned Marcus Fontaine, which was really interesting. So I said, oh, can I come to Kimberley? And he said, wouldn't you be rather more interested in doing a book on the old buildings of Kimberley? And I'd never been there before. So we hopped on a plane, my business partner and I, and we spent a few days with a tour guide just walking around or looking into a long list of old buildings. And we came away at the end of that a short trip with the book signed and decided upon. We had our cast list of all the buildings, took four months to produce, to photograph, and there it is. It's a fantastic book on a city which has never been photographed. And you tell me that even some South Africans don't know where it is. Well, sure. I, I, had a, I was meeting a person the other day who, quite an intelligent person, I was thinking of hiring, actually, and she kept on confusing Kimberley with Bloemfontein. And I think that's quite common. I don't think Kimberley's on very many people's itineraries. No, and I think everyone knows it for the big hole, and that's about it. Now, I'm going to tell you something, because I've often had difference with you about how you select places. And I thought, well, mm, this is all architectural, so it's all colonial. Isn't perhaps time we'd looked at other things? Now, were there anything else that you could have looked at in terms of historic pre-colonial times that might have been of interest? There were things, there very few of them in Kimberley. The buildings which aren't about roads or De Beers or diamond mining tend to be occupied by the telephone office or that kind of thing. We did look at Sol Plyke's house, but it's actually, it's an archive and it's full of fi filing cabinets and posters and it was nothing to photograph, although we did photograph the exterior and it's in the book. And we also photographed the big hole museum because it's really very, very interesting. It's, they moved a lot of the old buildings from around the city and put them in one place. And we also photographed the inside of the Vesselton mine. We sent Alain Proust four kilometers down underneath the grounds with his camera and he photographed these extraordinary tunnels. But, you know, even down there, four kilometers down, you can't get away from roads. And this is an old 
De Beers uh, mine. And there were no heritage sites in terms of pre-colonial times or sites of... Nothing. Uh, well, it's interesting because I did do a Google search because I wanted to confront you about that and I could find nothing either. So you're off the hook. Now, tell us about some of the buildings and what engrossed you and what sort of Today's your interest, and of course we also have to acknowledge that you have looked at other cities like Cape Town and Johannesburg yes. before. So tell us a little bit about some of the things that you found exciting. Well, the most exciting thing about Kimberley, it was almost like time had stood still. There are buildings there which have never been touched. There are old houses there, like Dunluce, which was lived in by the Stutterford family. There's Rudd House that was lived in by the the man who after whom the Rudd concession was named, you know, which became Rhodesia. There's the Africana Museum, which is filled with Rhodes memorabilia, including the map on which Rhodes had drawn the line connecting Cape Town and Cairo. Just an extraordinary moment in time. I mean, Kimberley was, an, it was a very important city for about 35 years in the second half of the 19th century. And the Africana Museum is still an extraordinary yes. repository of amazing things. I love your, the fact you've chosen it as your cover image. Mm. And other and places of worship seem to be quite preeminent. Yes, there are lots of them. There's the synagogue in Kimberley, which really is really it's a fascinating building. It looks like it could have come out of old Constantinople. It's got domes on the roof. It's a virtually a triangular building. It's got a very beautiful interior. I think there are probably about nine Jews left in in Kimberley. Everybody's moved on to other places or they've emigrated, and you wonder about the future of that place. There's uh, the Sister Henrietta Chapel. It's a small chapel uh, attached to an old hospital. And she's the one who really started the the nursing profession, gave it a kind of professional entity in this country. There's, I'm just looking on my list, there's the Cathedral of of St. Cyprian the Martyr, beautiful Anglican cathedral, all in very good condition, well looked after, I think probably well attended. There's the old Lutheran... No, there's the, seventh day, the Church of the Seventh-day Adventist. It's an now, what about church. the oddest or most unusual, something that really struck you as something that you'd want to see? I think probably Rhodes's boardroom. It's the original boardroom his business occupied before De Beers came into existence. It's still there. It's still got his boardroom in it, his boardroom table in it. And it's still waiting for you to discover it. So, it folks, if you want to really find out quite a lot about <laughs> Kimberley, you need to just read Inside Kimberley. It's written up by Paul Duncan, who's done a great job on looking at cities, together with Elaine Proust, who's done some beautiful photographs. So, discover Inside Kimberley. Very clever, Paul Duncan and Elaine Proust. Kimberley sounds visitable. And if we can't, we can have a good look and get the book. Oh, 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 
And that's it for today. It was, as always, very good to be with you. Thank you for staying with us. And Amanda Buerta's book, yes, sir, at this same time on Wednesday, April 18. Thank you to Rick Everett for so kindly compiling the music. Thank you to Matabataba Khadabi for so cleverly keeping his fingers on the buttons. From me, Gory Bowes-Taylor, it's goodbye and good reading. Book Choice was proudly brought to you by Wordsworth Books. Hi, I'm Andrew from Wordsworth Books. We have bookshops that are a bit different. We have staff that are a bit different. We love our customers and we're passionate about our books. From paperbacks at 59 Rand to Leonardo da Vinci at 2,000 Rand, our selection is remarkable. And we sell special stationery as well. Wordsworth. We sell books the old-fashioned way. We read them. FMR